If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The way they talked about it, it sounded as if they were in a kind of stunned, suspended state of disbelief that because nobody knew what had happened except them, it kind of hadn't happened. That was Kate Summerscale talking about a strange murder case in Victorian Britain. This vessel and thousands of other vessels are servicing the Britain's global capitalist economy. And that was Andrew Lambert on location on the historic clipper Cutty Sark. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of May 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Kate Summerscale, an author and journalist. Kate is probably best known for her 2008 book, The Suspicions of Mr Witcher, a Victorian true crime mystery that was also adapted for television in the UK. Her new book, The Wicked Boy, is another investigation of 19th century crime, this time the killing of a woman, apparently by her teenage son, in 1895. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Kate in London recently and began by asking her why she decided to focus on this murder for her book. I came across the story of the trial of these two brothers um, in an old newspaper and I was very intrigued by it. It seemed a very terrible and strange crime that one or both boys as it first appeared had committed and I want and as if there was something kind of not being said in the courtroom that there was more to it than was being described in the newspapers and the old Bailey transcript Um, and so I, I sort of just started researching more to find out did the, the boy in question kill his mother as he confessed and as he was charged? And if so, why and under what circumstances? Um, and it seemed a great mystery at the time and remained one, and I wanted to find out more. So for people who, who might not know, uh, who were these boys? When did this happen? And what, what, what happened? What was the crime? The crime was that, well, the, these boys were seen wandering round East London in the summer of 1895 and they said that their mother uh, had gone to visit her family in Liverpool and their father was at sea 
Um, he was a ship steward. And um, after about 10 days, the neighbours felt very uneasy about what was going on and they smelt something coming from the house, an unpleasant smell. And the boy's aunt burst into the house and looked and discovered the body of their mother upstairs in the bedroom, dead, decomposing, and called the police. And the older of the two boys, these boys were only 13 and 12, he confessed and said, I killed her. And the boys were arrested And over the next few weeks, through that summer of 1895, uh, there were various hearings in the magistrate's court, there was a coroner's inquest, and finally there was a trial, the Old Bailey, in September, where the older boy was charged with murder. There was also an old, uh, not an old man, a man of about 45, who'd been staying in the house with them in these 10 days when they claimed their parents were away. And he too, was charged with some kind of complicity in the crime. Um, But he pleaded innocence and said that uh, he had nothing to do with it and the boys had come and fetched him after the event and asked him to come to stay with them. So there were three individuals in this case, the older brother, Robert, 13, his brother, Natty, 12, and this old sailor, John Fox, who was staying with them, and all three fell under suspicion. Um, So how much did you know about the case when you first started looking into it? And what were the most important sources for you for finding out more? The first, I first came across it in a newspaper report, and that sent me to the Old Bailey transcripts which are available online. I looked up the case there and read the transcript of the trial which was very full and contained a lot of information um, not not just about the crime itself but about the boys behaviour after the crime, the 10 days in which they were living in the house with their mother's body and also various clues about their lives um, and the temperament of the older boy and problems he'd experienced before. And so that was my initial very rich source. But there were lots of things that the Old Bailey transcript didn't report, um, partly because of the the form it took. And and so I went back to newspapers, especially local newspapers, and uh, researched more and more there. So most of my material about the, the, the weeks after the murder... Um, and the, the hearings and the trial came from local newspapers, transcripts, and a file in the National Archives in which various witness statements had been preserved. So that was great. Um, also some transcripts of the evidence in the trial, such as a letter that the boy wrote to his father, various receipts and documents. So there was some sort of first-hand evidence as well as the reporting. We should talk a bit, I suppose, talking about news, uh, newspapers, about the local area in which this uh, crime happened. How, how important is it to understand the area in order to understand these characters and the world they lived in? That was um, fantastically important to me. And the place in which this crime took place was Plasto in West Ham. And I knew very little about it, but I realised that it was fairly close to the docks and that there were a lot of links with the river and the sea in this case, that nearly everyone involved had some connection to seafaring and the London and the docks, Victoria and Albert docks. 
And um, that the whole area was, in a sense, a kind of brand new working class city, which had been colonised, had been had grown at an extraordinary rate over the previous 25 years or so. And so it was a, it was at once a very deprived place and a very modern place. There was something, often it was characterised as extremely sort of bleak and soulless. But to some extent, those descriptions came from middle-class literary types who visited and were horrified by all the, the, the sameness of what they saw, the dreariness of the terraces that had been punched out. And in many respects, it must have been like a sort of new model city where people felt that they were living in kind of cleanliness and order as well. And that kind of tension between how sort of new and forward-looking it was and how desperate and deprived it was it was seen as by some was really interesting um we'll talk about the actual events of the crime itself in a minute but there's that 10-day period after it happened and before it was discovered uh, which you describe as the boys living in almost a state of fantasy um what do they do during this time and how, how do you understand their kind of mental state during this time i guess well, I, to sort of bore in on me very strongly that they were very young. The elder boy, who was 13, had left school only a few weeks before he'd reached the end of his state-funded education. The younger one was still at school. And after killing their mother, they they were the only people in the world who, who knew of this, and they never spoke of it in court. Um, they said, we just didn't refer to it even to each other. And they appeared normal, they played in the street, they played cricket, they um, went to see, they went to see the cricket at Lords. Um, they went to a match, they went to the seaside and went fishing. So there were all these innocent pursuits, these sort of late Victoria, they were enjoying themselves. And um, it felt like a period of of play, of of holiday. Not a not not really cynical. They weren't trying to hide. They weren't trying to escape. And I imagined, and the way they talked about it, it sounded as if they were in a kind of stunned, suspended state of disbelief that because nobody knew what had happened except them, it kind of hadn't happened. And what an unbelievable thing to do to kill your mother. It must have, I, I thought it, it must have felt as if it was something imagined rather than real. And their inaction, I mean, they, they acted as in they went out and enjoyed themselves, but they didn't try to didn't do anything to, to stop the body rotting. It was inevitable that they would be discovered. And so I thought it was a very curious kind of psychological fugue <laughs> that they went into together and that the... The, the the fact that there were two of them in it made it possible to do that, to live in this and its fantasy state for yeah. 10 days. And then it was discovered, of course, inevitably, as you say. What happened next and how did they react to it, I suppose? Well, I had the feeling that when the body was discovered by the boy's aunt and a friend of hers and then the police, that the older boy, the one who said he had stabbed her, experienced a kind of relief. He confessed very quickly. He didn't try to run. And almost eagerly, he said, I'll tell you what I did, auntie, you know. And um, the younger boy got out of the window and ran. <laughs> so there was a very dramatic contrast by the way the brothers responded to being discovered. 
Uh, in a way, the younger one was more sort of savvy about it, more streetwise. You know, he knew exactly what was coming and um, he tried to escape the consequences. Whereas the older boy was still in this, seemed this sort of dazed, kind of semi-innocent state, even though he was the one who described himself as the perpetrator. And, um, and then they were, the younger boy was captured within the day. Uh, the two of them were, and John Fox, the man who was in the house with them, um, were all arrested and taken to the local police station, which was just a few minutes away in the Barking Road, and locked up in cells overnight mm. um, and to await their hearing at the West Ham Magistrates Court. Mm. And the hearing is extraordinary, um, and it unfolds in such lovely detail in the book. Um, what sense do we get of how they reacted and how their characters came across to the people who were watching? Well, the older boy behaved in all the court hearings, most of them, um, with a kind of a sort of suppressed excitement almost. He seemed kind of callous, a bit indifferent. He'd look around. He seemed sort of... Um, sort of interested in what was going on, but he didn't look upset or guilty or remorseful. He turned himself out very well. He sort of put on his best clothes and um, he, whereas the younger one was um, portrayed in the press. He was quite a lot smaller than his brother, even though there was only a year between them. Um, The younger one was kind of quivering and sobbing and he was dressed in much more childish clothes and so whether because he was good at presenting himself in a more pitiable state or because he really was emotionally much more kind of vulnerable and unguarded um, and unable to you know put a front on um, they they behaved very differently in court and the older boy who was 13 seemed like a a sort of well put together, smart young man, and the younger boy who was twelve seemed like a child. We, sh- I mean, we should talk a, a bit about um, the perceived motivation and your take on the motivation. Um, particularly, I suppose, in light of the fact that the older boy, there's accounts of him kind of laughing and being quite uncontrollable with his emotions. Um, how was this regarded, and how how do you think it fits in with with their motivations during this whole period? With the older boy, for the first few court appearances, um, the times the press were able to observe him in court, seemed very self-possessed, composed, callous, cold, um, and rather pleased with himself. By the time he got to the Old Bailey, though, during the trial at the Old Bailey, he started behaving again. He came into the court very cool. But um, during the trial, he started grimacing, making faces, laughing to himself and acting in a in a very um, sort of manic way. Mm. Um, And this was interpreted differently even by the press at the time. So some reporters um, commented on this with kind of disgust that he was mocking the court, that this was like his his coldness taken to a new level like he was a kind of psychopath who just couldn't care less and was laughing and not listening and amusing himself and jeering at the judge but other commentators thought oh maybe he is insane he in his um 
counsel pleaded that you know, insane insanity for him at the trial and it looked at through that lens maybe this behavior was that he'd got out of control that he he wasn't able to maintain this uh, veneer of coolness and sophistication and he was um you know his kind of madness was was coming out was playing out in the courtroom um what do you think the media coverage of this case tells us about the period I think a lot of these very strange and extreme cases are fascinating for what they reveal about how people thought about themselves and their society. Um, And this case was particularly interesting because it was children. And these boys were perceived as children. They were below the age of 14, which was the legal um, age at which a boy became an adult, a girl was 16. And um, they... it, It sort of showed what the sort of range of possibilities were. There was no longer, as there had been maybe you know, 100 years earlier, the idea that the devil was in them. It was more, but there was the, new, the equivalent of that was that perhaps they would had degenerated them to a kind of atavistic, primitive state in the wake of the Darwinian theories about human beings having evolved from more primitive creatures that the that there were especially among the urban poor it was perceived that there were people who were sort of throwbacks to that period and that a kind of madness and depravity and delinquency could arise from an inherited disease of of, of some sort of primitive organism and this was referred to very regularly not in all the papers because it was a it was a popular theory but it wasn't a universally held one um, and so but with this extreme case it was something that people sort of latched onto as an explanation do you think there are any parallels with 21st century moral panics about boys or, or indeed you know children generally it seemed to me very reminiscent, um, uh, well, especially in the the connection that was made between the boy's crime and the penny dreadfuls found in their house. So when the body was discovered, the police also found in the back bedroom, in the back parlour of the house, um, a collection of sensational magazines, penny dreadfuls, as they were known, and they ascribed the, Robert Coombs's attack on his mother to his consumption of these magazines. Many people did. The police gave them to the coroner's court as, uh, as evidence. And um, the, the jury, the inquest jury said, we, the, you know, we think the government should take steps to stop the, the publication of these magazines. And that seemed to me... Um, it reminded me of things that have happened within my lifetime of um, children or adolescents committing crimes and there being a very strong link suggested between the um, video nasties they watched or the video games they played or even adults like Breivik in Norway, you know, that, um, that, that the sense that the excessive consumption of certain popular culture... Uh, can have a warping, dangerous, and even sort of criminalising effect on on the young. Um, And so it was really interesting to read all the different ways of how people thought that these penny dreadfuls had affected the boys and how they thought that they had corrupted them, because in a way it was a kind of template 
for all the arguments that have followed in the 20th century and the 21st about comics, video games, violent films. Um, and so, and this, the, the thing about Penny Dreadfuls, they're called Penny Dreadfuls because they originally cost a penny. They were available to the working classes and nearly all these moral panics are about the mass consumption of these stuff. It's about working class access to lurid and and violent material. And this, I I won't say it was the very first, but I think it probably was kind of the the first big thing where there were a million of these penny dreadfuls sold a week and the sense that the whole youth, working class youth of the nation was being formed by them. And where would that take us? You know, the real terror about that was really interesting. How hard was it for you separating truth from non-truth during the course of your work on this book? Well, I suppose I the, the, in a, the crime like this, you the the people in the story are quite likely to be distorting the facts in order to favour themselves and their own accounts, um, especially those who have who are being charged with murder um but but everyone really you know the friends of the mother would be telling the story through a lens the father would be telling a story that would kind of favor him make him not look like a bad father um and so you've got to read absolutely everything (laughs) skeptically but without thinking that you can't in the end that these aren't in the end the best witnesses that there are and that you've got. You don't know anything better than them. Um, So it's just testing all the accounts against one another. And most importantly, I suppose, I really, really wanted to know what became of these boys afterwards. And I thought that only by understanding what happened to them would I be able to really assess the truth of what they told in the first place. So what was the outcome of the trial? The outcome of the trial was that the younger brother, he was um, discharged before the trial began. He gave evidence against his older brother, which was a, a pretty painful thing, I'm, I'm sure, for both of them. Um, and he, he, gave, he gave evidence to show that his brother had killed the mother. Um, the, the father and various doctors appeared for the defence not to say that the older boy hadn't done it, but to say that he had been insane at the time, that he'd, lo- that he'd had a, a sort of psychotic episode, a homicidal mania, they called it. And um, in the end, the jury came in with a verdict of guilty, but a recommendation to mercy on account of the boy's age and because they said they didn't think he really understood what he'd done. But the judge was quite hardline and wouldn't have it and said, sent them back again and said, no, you say either he's um, guilty or he's guilty but insane. And so they came back with guilty but insane, and um, so which meant that he could be detained as they had it at Her Majesty's pleasure. So he wouldn't go to prison, but he would be held in a, um, a secure hospital, a, a lunatic asylum, for as long as um, the Queen wished. How how did that judgment affect how the media and people generally looked at the case and the crime? Did it change their view of of what had happened and these boys, I suppose? 
Well, I think that the the judgment, uh, in my view, and in the view, well, uh, I get my view from reading the newspaper commentary of the time, most of the newspapers didn't believe he was insane and they didn't believe that the jury thought he was insane or the judge. They didn't think no one thought he was crazy or hardly anyone did. But what they thought was that it was a fair, a fair verdict because it was a way of showing him mercy that because of his youth. And it was a sort of weird thing because the law applied equally to someone like him as it would have done to a full-blown adult. The jury had sort of taken it upon themselves to find a way, to find a loophole by which they could spare him the gallows and also spare him the full blame to deliver some verdict that said, that, that was more sympathetic than a simply, you know, that, that kind of acknowledged his lack of capacity his, his inability to have full responsibility for his actions. Um, and they ascribed it to madness because at the time that was the only way you could ascribe it to, to any, that was the only thing to ascribe it to. But in effect, um, I think they were ascribing it to youth, you know, yeah. and, um, and possibly to, to sort of disturbance, emotional disturbance rather than a kind of clinical madness yeah this is possibly an impossible question but of all the really richly drawn characters in this book are there any that you feel particularly empathetic towards or that you think you feel sympathy for um i sort of try to imagine myself in the position of most of the characters in the book at, at different times um i was the the main protagonist robert the boy who killed his mother and said he did um, he was the character who fascinated me most from the off. And um, his strange, all the mixture of his honesty and his guile, um, his sort of dreaminess and his ambitions, but also his pragmatism, just seems such a complicated uh, character. And I thought he seemed like a, a, a dam damaged in some way, highly competent in others. He was very musical. Um, he was considered very clever and he, this was an act of phenomenal self-sabotage and self, this self-destructive act. I, I was very interested in him and it was his, um, his, his, his character and his sort of inner life and his fate that I wanted to know most about. But his brother, Natty, um, always sort of in his shadow, but in a way, the most elusive of all, because his the, his part in the crime and the relationship between the two brothers is absolutely key to it. I don't think this would have happened if there hadn't been two of them. What would you like this book uh, to do in terms of changing how people view this period or these people or this kind of story? Well, I, I think that um, in many ways, we, we're not so different in terms of how we think of young people and children who do terrible things. And um, I think to, to look at it at a distance in time, to look at a case from, and to sort of realise that we, our ways of thinking about these things isn't, isn't much developed or changed, but also to see the ways that we're available to think about it then and, and to sort of test our own ideas against them is... Um, 
including the ideas about the penny dreadfuls, about the influence of popular culture on young people, is um, is is a, a really sort of enlightening and humanising exercise. And the fact that it's now, more recent cases, it's quite hard to, to it's all the harder to get close to what the real story and the real motive and the end of the story is. With this story, I did find out what was the end of the story in a way that, say, with more recent um, child killers who've been released from um, prison or detention and have adopted new ideas, you know, we don't really know what happens to them. I did find out what happened to this boy and I found it um, very moving. And uh, and I think it it tells you something about the terrible acts that people can do while still not being terrible people or not even becoming terrible people because of what they've done. So I found it quite a, a hopeful story in a way, even though the the, from the start, it was about as terrible, you know, it was about as terrible a crime as, as many people can imagine. That was Kate Summerscale. The Wicked Boy, The Mystery of a Victorian Child Murderer is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. And in the US, it's due to be published by Penguin in July. You can read more from Kate and Matt in the May edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Thomas More, the Battle of Jutland, the Wars of the Roses and 19th century fairies, among other things. You can get a hold of our May issue now in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Tudor drama Wolf Hall scooped two awards at this year's BAFTA Television Awards. Mark Rylance received the Leading Actor Award for his role as Thomas Cromwell and the show won the Drama Series Prize. Claire Foy's performance as Anne Boleyn earned her a nomination for leading actress, while Anton Lesser, who played Thomas More, received a nomination for supporting actor. Wolf Hall, which aired last year, chronicles the rise of Henry VIII's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. The six-part adaptation of Hilary Mantel's novels became BBC Two's most successful new series for a decade after attracting around four million viewers for the opening episode. Another history winner at the awards was Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners. The documentary series presented by David Olashuga won Best Specialist Factual. In other news, more tests are needed to determine whether there is a secret chamber within Tutankhamun's tomb that contains the remains of his stepmother, Queen Nefertiti, Egypt's Antiquities Minister has said. 
At a conference discussing whether or not there are hidden chambers in King Tut's tomb, the minister said no physical exploration of the tomb would be allowed unless he was, quote, 100% sure there is a cavity behind the wall, the Daily Mail reports. British Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves last year published a paper speculating that Tutankhamun's tomb may actually contain another intact burial. In his opinion, the tomb of Queen Nefertiti. Reeves had studied the results of a laser scan that portrayed the texture of the burial chamber's walls in unprecedented detail, says National Geographic. Meanwhile, a 16th-century rectory lived in by Henry VIII's Lord Chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey, before his rise to power, has gone on sale for £1.5 million. Wolsey lived at the old rectory when he was the parish priest at St Mary's Church in Lymington, a small village near Yeovil in Somerset. Thomas Gray, the Marquis of Dorset, gave Wolsey the rectory to reside in in 1500, after being impressed by Wolsey's tutoring of his three sons at Magdalen College in Oxford. Wolsey was the rector at St Mary's Church until 1509, when Henry VIII ascended the throne and appointed him to the Privy Council. The rectory boasts six bedrooms and four reception rooms, and retained many of its original period features, including fireplaces, flagstone floors and a mahogany staircase, the Daily Mail reports. Each month in a magazine, we take a trip to a historical location in the UK, accompanied by a relevant expert. For our latest edition, our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, headed to Greenwich to visit the famous 19th century clipper, Cutty Sark. There he was joined by Professor Andrew Lambert of King's College London. Let's hear how they got on. When and where was the Cutty Sark built? Cutty Sark was built in Dumbarton on the Clyde in 1869 for a ship owner who wanted to use her in the China tea trade. She's a very specific kind of ship. She's designed to do one job. She's not a general purpose vessel. She has this singular mission, sail to China, load up with as much tea as you can carry, get home first because there's a premium on the first tea crop to arrive in London each season. So she's in many ways a combination of a merchant ship and a racing yacht. Um, she was a clipper. Could, I wonder if you could just explain what a clipper is, what distinguishes a clipper from other types of vessels. Yep. A clipper is one of the 19th century's technological innovations, taking the merchant sailing ship, which was normally fairly slow, quite, quite capacious, loaded down with bulky, low-value goods, and refining it to carry high-value goods of relatively small weight over long distances at particularly high speed. So a very fine hull form designed to pass through the water quickly and a very large sail area to increase the amount of energy behind the ship. So it, it's transforming the transit van into the Formula One car. And what, what was there a need for this type of vessel? The economics of sea travel and sea trade mean that there's always a premium for high speed. So throughout history, for sailing ships, there have always been jobs where you're building speed. And this was an opportunity to use speed on a truly global scale. Uh, Canton is on the other side of the world, and so getting that tea back, you're going to get more value out of racing halfway around the world than you are out of racing across the channel. 
So the economies of scale mean that on this very long voyage, that extra speed is valuable because your cargo doesn't weigh very much. Right. You know, Cuddy Sark's cargo is as many boxes of tea as you can pack under the hatches. Um, and that's determined by the shape of the hull, which is determined by the need for speed. So it's, it's getting the right balance between cargo capacity, speed, and endurance. So is there some serious money to be made out of um, transporting tea back from China? Yeah. Ship cost about 16,000 pounds to build. Uh, a full cargo of tea was worth close on 300,000 pounds in contemporary money. Yeah. And that's an awful lot more in modern money. So the ship paid for itself almost instantly. Yeah. And every year it came early to the tea market, using that high speed to be the first ship to reach home. There was a premium on that, that tea cargo. So racing home, you got extra for the cargo. You shortened your route, you shortened the amount of time you had to pay the sailors as well. Because once a ship pays off, you're not paying the men anymore. So speed is money. How did the the development of clippers changed the face of world trade. Did it make, did it make all the types of ships almost defunct overnight? Yeah. The clipper is a reflection of the growth in the scale of international trade and the reach of international markets. So the truly globalized markets of the early to mid 19th century are on the other side of the world. The Americans are pioneering clippers to sail from New York to California. And that's all. Why did they do that? Because there's gold in California. Right, okay. uh, a lot of people want to get to California very quickly, yeah. and people who've got gold want to get back very quickly. Right. So the speed element comes in there. So were the Americans a pioneer, the pioneers of Clipper? The Americans pioneered the Clipper, and the British developed a very specific kind of Clipper. American Clippers tended to be bigger. Right. They carried more cargo. Most of the cargo was of lower value whereas the Cuddy Sark has this very high-value, lightweight cargo. Yeah. So this is quite a specific, extreme end of the clipper spectrum. This is a ship that could sail at 20 miles an hour, uh, which is, for a full-size ocean-going ship, is just astonishing. Yeah. So what kind of speeds would the previous ships have uh, How does it compare? Standard sailing merchant ships would be making 10 miles an hour on a good day. Double. Yeah. And that's about having a huge spread of canvas. And with this ship, not only have you got all this, the ordinary rig canvas spread, but you've got two more layers above that. And you've also got extra poles out sideways, the stuncils, so you can just keep extending the sail area. So, however little wind there is, you can maximize the draw. So, th this is a very sophisticated wind catching machine. Yeah. Um was the Cutty Sark the cutting edge of Clipper design? I mean, was it one of the best ships within the Clipper class? The Cutty Sark was the last and probably the best of all of the Clippers uh, because this line of business pretty much died out shortly after she was finished. So they don't go beyond this. This is right. it. So it, it's the end of a line for technology and the later sailing ships tended to go back towards a more moderate hull form, greater carrying capacity, and slightly less demanding to sail, and less rapid through the water, because the cargoes they were carrying were no longer high value or market sensitive. How much of a demand was there for products like tea and wool in the middle of the 19th century from the British market? 
from the late 18th century onwards, Britain has become a tea drinking nation, yeah. and the tea is all in this period coming from China. So the premium on tea is two things. First of all, it's come a long way, and you're paying top dollar for it in China. Secondly, the government has a 100% import levy on tea. And it's been calculated that the cost of the Royal Navy from the first half of the 19th century was paid for annually by the import duty on tea. So there's a lot of money to be made in tea because everybody is drinking it. And the elite are drinking very particular kinds of tea. And as you come down the socioeconomic scale, people are drinking a more broad-based kind of tea uh, the ancestors of some of the teas we drink now, the more humdrum teas, that they're the ones that are basically what's left over when the expensive stuff has been sold. So it's, it's not tea as one single cargo, it's different kinds of tea from different places producing very different outcomes in the cup. And so in a ship of this size, it wouldn't be a, a single cargo of one kind of tea. Right. It would almost certainly be different kinds of tea, box by box. And how long would it have take, taken the Cutty-Sark to make the journey uh, to China and back? Uh, round trip, minimum six months. Okay. Uh, uh, 78, 79, 80 days yeah. uh, at sea, uh, probably slightly longer. What, what impact did the um, Suez Canal have on, on boats like the Cutty-Sark yeah. and clippers in general? Um, at almost exactly the same time the Cutty Sark is launched, in late 1869, the Suez Canal is opened, linking the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean through the Red Sea. This is transformational. It was always faster to sail with a, with a sailing ship like the Cutty Sark round to China than you could possibly go round Africa in a steamship. Steamships had limited range and needed to refuel. The Suez Canal allows you to go past a whole series of coaling stations where you can refuel. It shortens the steamship route between London, India, China, and it brings the steamship into that market. Sailing ships don't go through the Suez Canal because the Mediterranean isn't an easy sailing sea. You would have to pay towage to go through the Suez Canal, which is expensive, and you can't sail down the Red Sea. So it, it is a, it's a complete dead end for sailing ships. So the sailing ship continues to sail the old way and it's competing with steamships, which are getting faster and faster and more and more economical and are coming in on a different and more advantageous route. So it's really within a decade of the Suez Canal opening, this trade is finished. Right. So what impact does that have on the Cutty-Sark? I understand she started, then started doing a different route. Yeah. So having built this, very particular specific piece of equipment to do a very specific mission it's just disappeared what are you going to do with this very peculiar ship you're going to have to find another trade where the advantages of speed still count and it took some time to find it and it was the australian wool trade and sailing to australia you sail basically due south right the way down the atlantic past south africa get into the roaring 40s at the very low latitudes and you then get a very fast passage to australia you then pick up the roaring 40s on the way back round cape Horn, and back up the atlantic and again this ship proved to be exceptionally fast uh, it never won the tea clipper race but it always almost always won the wool clipper race on that note can you just explain what the tea race was yeah essentially the first shipload of tea that arrived in london each year would get a premium price uh, the new season's crop was attractive i think just for, for pure novelty 
So the extreme clippers like Cutty Sark would race. They would load quickly in Canton as soon as the tea was released and they would then do everything they could to get back to London first. Uh, on one occasion, Cutty Sark was leading by miles and part of her rigging gave way and she limped in second. Uh, she probably was the fastest of all the tea clippers, but she wasn't lucky enough to win the race. Was there quite a lot of prestige attached to winning this race? The Cutty Sark was in a race that was in the newspapers every day. And all around the world, Lloyds of London's reporting stations would say that they'd seen this ship or the other ships passing and that news had come in that such and such ship was leading the race. So this was, this was a great public event. This was something that the people actively engaged with. It was a bit like the America's Cup, only it had a purpose. Yeah. Um, and it kept people on the edge of their seats. And of course, in London, you would see the result. One of these ships would come up the river into the East India Dock and unload. Um, how much did um, successful design of boats like the Cutty Sark um, play into sort of Britain's power and prestige and economic well-being in, during the middle of the 19th century? I think in many ways, Cutty Sark isn't so much a contributor to British maritime dominance, it's a product of it. Britain is so dominant at sea that it can afford to operate vessels like this, which are marginally economically attractive, unless the seas are absolutely secure. The ship has no armament, it can't defend itself. It could be easily captured by, uh, by other vessels. But Britain has got the seas under control, has reduced the threat of piracy, there are no major wars going on. So ships like this can sail around the oceans at high speed with very small crews in the safe knowledge that they're not going to be attacked. And this means that the insurance on that voyage is low. That insurance is all run out of the city of London, uh, as is the whole capital structure that these ships are servicing. So, this vessel and thousands of other vessels are servicing the Britain's global capitalist economy. That capitalist economy creates a demand for shipping services, which London, Britain is servicing. Uh, it's no accident, of course, the hull planks are Indian teak. So this is a very imperial ship. It's built in Scotland with British iron and Indian wood. Uh, and it sails to China, past Hong Kong, and then it sails to Australia. This is part of a global imperial structure. And the market information that tells you what to bring home from your markets is flying through the submarine telegraph cable network. So from London, you can tell somebody in Sydney, what I actually want is this, not that. As market conditions change, the British global communications network allows you to control your shipping much better. The British global capitalist system is working really well right down to 1914. Britain is, is continuously advancing as an economic power. Its, its ability to control global markets is, is unprecedented. Uh, and all of that is essentially sacrificed in the First World War. Uh, and that imperial structure ne is never re rebuilt. So ships like the Cutty Sark are out of business. Out of business because sailing ships have gone. They're also out of business because the British control of the ocean has ebbed. So the cost of a, of a major war in Europe is effectively the end of the British Empire as a dynamic expanding construct. And it's an empire of finance and capital, not an empire of territory. Uh, it's, it's, people often look at this, the famous map with the pink bits on and say, look how big the British Empire is. Most of the big pink bits are not relevant. 
know, the middle of Australia is just red desert, yeah. and most of Canada is a white desert. Um, the British don't rule that, they rule the ocean, and the things that matter are the sea lanes that connect Britain, the empire, and the markets that Britain dominates. So was there a lot of rivalry between different powers over these sea lanes in the mid-19th century, or was Britain no. so dominant? From 1815 to 1914, nobody challenges British control of the sea. In many ways, other people's trade relies on British security. So the British are able to construct an image of themselves as the kind of guardians of good order at sea, the kind of yeah. maritime world police force. That's not what they're doing. They're making sure it's good for them. <laughs> and other people are piggybacking on that by yeah. saying, well, as it's safe, I can now operate too. Yeah. And what you then discover in 1914 is that nobody can operate globally without, without the British allowing them to. Uh, when Germany declares war, the British just close down their global communications, seize all of their ships, take their colonies. And the, the First World War is essentially a large European war in which Britain is operating globally and everybody else is operating on a European scale. So that absolute dominance of communications is unprecedented and it's never really been restored. A bit more generally, what, what gave Britain the edge? in the age of sale? Why, why was Britain so successful? Well, England in the Tudor era and latterly in the 17th, 18th century, Britain deliberately and consciously creates a maritime commercial state. Uh, it's dominated by relatively democratic politics. The combination of landed and capitalist wealth giving political representation to merchants as well as landowners, constitutional monarchy, an elective democracy, a place where you know that the rule of law will protect your investments in high-risk overseas ventures. Uh, in European autocratic governments, if you're making a lot of money out of foreign trade, the king will seize your property. In Britain, that will not happen. So you make people feel secure to take risk and you build mechanisms that allow risk to be spread. So the ownership of ships was very often split up into 20ths. Yeah. So if you lost a ship, it was only 1 20th of your portfolio rather than all of it. So the state constructs itself as a maritime global trading state, politically and strategically. Its right arm is a navy, not an army. The British army is a very small army um, because this is an island and the British have no ambition to invade any major European states. Yeah. So they, they fine-tune the state to be different to their competitors. And their advantage isn't size or strength, because Britain is relatively small yeah. and relatively lacking population. Their advantage is being asymmetric. Turning to the Cutty Sarks um, trade with Australia. Yep. So what, how long did that last for? How long did it by the trade to Australia? Uh, uh, just over a decade. Yeah. So in the 1880s and the 1890s, and then again, the, the steamships become more and more efficient. Uh, as the steam technology improves, the size of the ships improves, and the economies of scale cut in. This is actually a very small ship. Uh, if you have a 10,000 ton ocean-going steamer, you can bring a lot of wool back. Uh, you can't compete. You can compete on speed, but the, the speed advantage in wool isn't that great. It's not like the tea trade. And so the unique selling point of this type of vessel is slowly drifting out of relevance. So it, it, it ceases to be engaged in primary British trades and is sold into Portuguese ownership and does other long-range trading. 
but it, it's no longer in a, in a racing trade. It's no longer using that speed advantage. It's just a very good ship, which is being used up in secondary or tertiary ways long after its, its initial function has disappeared. So it ends up in Portuguese hands. How does it make the journey from um, in Portuguese hands to where it is now? Essentially, it was coming out of London down the channel and it was damaged in a storm and it limped into Falmouth and a retired sea captain saw it and knew what it was and he bought it and turned it over to be a training ship. So from the 1920s to the end of the Second World War, it was essentially being used to train young sailors, uh, mostly in Falmouth Harbour. And then after the war, for a number of reasons, it was decided that this was a ship that should be preserved because of its fame, uh, because of its, its unique character, and as a memorial to the men of the, of the Merchant Navy who had served so valiantly in both world wars and had taken such heavy casualties uh, to keep Britain's lifelines open. That very thing that the Royal Navy had been built to do, which is to keep Britain fed and, and functioning, they'd managed it, but the cost to the Royal and Merchant Navies had been high. And so this is both a living memorial to past age, but also to a much more recent set of events. What are the famous uh, clippers were there at the time? Is there any others that um, were celebrated? By well, all of the ones that took part in the tea race were, were household names. Uh, the Thermopylae was yeah. one of Cutty Sark's rivals, slightly older ship, the Taiping, named after the Chinese rebels who tried to overthrow the empire. Yeah. Uh, and there were others. These, these were iconic vessels, and in their day, they had a, a notoriety, rather like the great Atlantic liners in the interwar period. Uh, they were household names. People knew what they were. Yeah. and gambling people put money on them. Yeah. Uh, and you can see how that works. Yeah. People get very interested because they've actually got some money riding on this. Where did she get her name from? Cuddy Sark is from Robert Burns' poem, Tam O'Shanta. Um, it's about a rather drunken fellow who rides home one night from the pub and uh, he believes a witch is after him. And it turns out she is. And she, uh, the Cutty Sark is the witch's dress, which is a short night dress. And if you visit the ship, you'll see that the witch figurehead has a pretty short night dress on. And in her hand is the tail of Tam O'Shandra's horse, which the witch has grabbed onto. Uh, but he's got home with it without his hat and without the horse's tail. So it, it's a rollicking good Scottish story, uh, written in dialect by Burns. And it would have appealed to John Willis, who built the ship. So clearly, he, he was a man who celebrated his Scottish identity sure. and chose something slightly risque uh, yeah. as the name of his ship. You know, my, my ship is called the Short Night Dress, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite unusual, yeah. So what kind of person was he? John Willis is clearly a very smart businessman. He's a master ship, he's a master yeah. ship, um, he's a ship captain, he runs his own business, this is his money, he has a an astute eye for a business opportunity. He bankrupts the people who build the ship. He runs a tight contract and he holds them to it and they, they just bankrupt themselves building it. So he's a hard man, uh, but he's also a very smart man. So his, uh, he gets exactly what he wants, a premium clipper ship yeah. for slightly less than premium price. How would you say Age world. By the middle of the 19th century, sailing ships had created the first truly global world economy. The ability of ships to sail around the world reliably, regularly, carrying people, cargo, mail, linked the world up. And it set the pattern for the world that we live in now. 
we can ring around the world on a mobile phone now, but the idea of global communications comes from the sailing ship. You don't walk around the world with a mail, you don't ride a horse around the world with a mail carrying a sailing ship. So the sailing ship created a global economy and everything that's happened since then has been a refinement of how you glo use globalized economic activity. So that is the building block from which everything else moves. And like all globalizing projects, it's British. The British created the global market uh, and they created the service systems to run it. Then they invented new ways of doing it, the steamship, telegraph cable, the wireless, uh, the internet. Um, they're all out there. And it, that's part of what Britain has contributed to the evolution of the world. And this sense of not being locked into, but being much more outward looking. And that's ultimately the key to the difference between the British and pretty much everybody else. The British see the world, everybody else sees the local. That was Spencer Mizzen with Professor Andrew Lambert of King's College London. You can read more about their visit to Cutty Sark in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. OK, so that's almost it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about Victorian domestic dangers with Susanna Lipscomb, while Admiral Lord West will be reflecting on the First World War Battle of Jutland. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>